Recovery Elevator, episode 248. I'm absolutely surrendering to this and letting it all go. And I'm going to live right now here in this full moment. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's podcast, we've got Patrick. He took his last drink on January 1st, 2019. He's 51 years old. He's from Boston, Massachusetts. And in his interview, he talks about how he's relied less on thinking to depart from alcohol. And the intro into his interview ties in beautifully with that statement. A new Cafe RE group, this will be the fourth name yet to be announced, will be launching January 1st. We started Cafe RE Go last January 1st, and it's full of rock stars, many of them who haven't touched the booze since January 1st of last year. So if you're thinking about taking the plunge into a way better life, then this is a fantastic opportunity. I am pumped to announce Recovery Elevator is going to Australia. Yeah, I'm putting on two meetups. The first one in Sydney. This is on Saturday, December 14th. This is at the Surf Fish Cafe at Bondi Beach, followed by additional activities. And then I'm putting together another one in Brisbane or the Gold Coast area on Saturday, December 21st. I do need a headcount, so if you'd like to attend, please email info at recoveryelevator.com and Carrie will get you on the list as well as more information about where to meet and when. So if you live within a couple hundred miles or want to check for flights, we'd love to have you. These meetups are a lot of fun. We've had roughly over 400,000 downloads from Australia. So if you're listening and you're Australia right now, thank you for listening. And I would love to meet you in person. So come hang out. The book Alcohol is Shit is now out. So what am I working on now? Well, I'm currently pumped to be working on a meditation course specific to those who want to ditch the booze. If you've been on this path for a hot minute, you've most likely heard the word meditation. This course will demystify the practice and scientifically show how calming the mind will rewire your brain for a better future. I'll be creating music for the guided meditations, which I will personally narrate. With the course, you'll get access to step-by-step instructions on how to meditate with over 15 guided meditations. Once the mind is calm in the alpha and theta states, then an internal coherence emerges, resulting in a happy life where alcohol is no longer needed. Warning, the prominent side effect of this course is you just might fall in love with yourself. I'm hoping to have this out by early next year, so stay tuned for a release date. Okay, let's get started. It's important we tell our story, own it, without a victim mentality. At Recovery Elevator Retreats, we give attendees a chance to tell their stories in front of small groups. For many, it's the first time this story has ever come out. I've seen intense emotional purges where a person feels much lighter after releasing some of the pent-up energy in word format. It's cathartic. It's empowering. Infinite strength can be found in this vulnerability. After I interview someone on the podcast, when I stop recording, usually I hear something like, whoa, that went by so fast, and it felt so good to tell it. It was therapeutic. However, wait for it, and if you've been listening to the podcast long enough, you know this is where the plot is about to thicken in three, two, one, telling your story over and over, fully identifying with the life up until this moment can be or actually is extremely dangerous. And before I continue, I want to make it clear, I'm not downplaying anyone's story or negating the severity of past events or saying that your perception of them is wrong. You dig? Same page? Okay, let's keep going. A long, long time ago, there used to be a tribe in the northern Basque region of Spain. Rumor had it, they let you tell your story three times. When word got out, you told your story three times and the next time you told it would have been a fourth they would take you to the precipice of a cliff they'd hold one ankle and the other person would hold another ankle and they'd hold you over the cliff and ask you will you tell your story again are you willing to pay for your life with this story i imagine at the bottom of the cliff there was alligators crocodiles snakes and let's go with a big rhinoceros yes so 
The reason why this tribe in Spain didn't want you to tell your story, well, there's several reasons. Number one, separation. If you keep telling your story, you become separated. It's like you're a fish in water asking for a drink. Number two, they couldn't trust you. They couldn't trust somebody on a night watch who was reliving their story, telling it over and over internally when there was a threat outside looming and you probably missed because you're telling your story. So that was then. And it may seem intense to say the cost for telling your story is your life, but we're actually doing the same thing today. So why is telling your story over and over, reliving every part of it dangerous? Well, if we're currently reliving the past, if our thoughts are centered in who we were to define who we are now, then we've already written the future. Let me say that in a simpler way. Your story becomes your future. The anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, self-loathing of the past, when we keep telling that familiar narrative now, just became the future. And sooner or later, your story is going to get boring. You're going to start creating new narratives, plots, and twists. And the mind will create the most thrilling drama of all time. For some, this has already happened. Do you want that? Do you want that to continue? You might be saying, well, hang on a second, Paul. This is, this is my story. I mean, it, it happened. I, I was there, right? Well, studies show that 50% of your memory, your story is wrong. You might be living a miserable, anxious, and depressed life you never had. This is why eyewitness accounts are so unreliable for police. Reports show that eyewitnesses who witnessed a robbery take place often get the color of the getaway car wrong, even though they were standing right in front of the car. So there's a good chance, in fact a very high likelihood, that the reasons you're telling yourself why you need a drink at night are wrong, flat out incorrect. When you're inside the guilt jar, you can't see the label. Now hang on for a second. Please don't hit the pause button and try to think back on part of your story that you may have got wrong because then you're thinking again and most likely the mind will fudge that up as well. Before we talk about how to no longer identify with a story, let's first talk about why we're doing this. By design, the brain is an anticipation machine and functions on knowing what's on the horizon. Your brain is a memory bank of the old self, a balance sheet, or a snapshot of everything up to date. It likes predictability. Even if the known predictable future consists of hungover mornings, wasted vacations, intense self-loathing, the brain will still choose that because it's the familiar known. Your brain subscribes to Newtonian Physics Weekly because it loves slash craves predictability, even if the future, just like alcohol, is shit. So how do we depart from our story, from the identification of a past that will inevitably become the future if we continue telling it? As the ancient Sufi mystic Rumi said, protect yourself from your thoughts. So good news, you've got about 60 to 70,000 opportunities per day to protect yourself from your thoughts. Be vigilant of every thought that comes into your mind. If it's an old familiar story, of how you're not worth it because of A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, gently tell your mind to stop. If you find yourself saying, I need a drink tonight because my coworkers did A, B, C, D, E, F, N, G, H, I, J, and K, give yourself a nudge and say, nope, we're not going there. Even when parts of your story emerge that you are 100% accurate happened and were super shitty, give yourself permission to let it go. Trust me. It's no longer serving you. So what happens when we stop telling our stories? When we depart from our comfort zone? Well, then we enter the infinite realm of possibilities. And I can guarantee you, sobriety, a life without alcohol, is one of those possibilities. So here's what can happen. Your past traumas, disease, addiction can literally disappear when you take your energies off it, as in your thoughts. That's not an exaggeration. So how to take our energies off it? There are infinite ways, but meditation is a great way, which is a big reason why I'm creating a meditation course. This is where I've personally been placing my efforts the past several months, and I've seen dramatic changes in my life. And how do you know you're changing? Well, you no longer feel compelled to tell your story. 
And after the interview with Patrick, I'll talk to you about the Your Story workshop that I put on at the Recovery Elevator Retreat this past August. And before we hear from Patrick, I just want to mention we have two spots left for the Recovery Elevator Asia Adventure Sober Alcohol-Free Travel Trip coming up this January 20th to 31st. Now, here are some reasons why the mind is probably telling you that you can't or shouldn't go. It's on the other side of the world. It's not cheap. Regarding my sobriety, I'm in a good spot. I got this. I don't speak Thai or Khmer. I don't know anyone who's going. I don't know if I can stay sober before the trip. I hear you. Those are all valid, perhaps, but be conscious of where those thoughts are coming from. Now, here are some of the reasons I think you should go. It's going to take new experiences, people, places, and things to create your new life. Traveling the world with others who no longer wish to drink alcohol is a magical experience. Listen to the body, heart, and soul. It wants you to go. Thai food, elephants, bike rides through the Southeast Asia countryside, anger what? You'll build that alcohol-free community the heart has been yearning for. Go to recoveryelevator.com for the full itinerary and details. Patrick, how are you? Oh, I'm great, and I've been looking forward to this interview. Yeah, Patrick, good to have you. Let's get right into this. When was your last drink? So my last drink was uh, this year, January 2nd. Uh, no, my last drink was January 1st, and my sobriety date would be January 2nd of 2019. There you go. Nice job. We're, uh, we're approaching 9, 10 months alcohol-free time. How's it feel? It feels good. It feels right. And it feels calming and freeing. Those are great words. It feels right. Well, good. But it feels right, calming, and freeing. I love that. And I'm excited to hear more about your story, your journey, your past experiences, which led up to this. And listeners, Patrick sent me an email that included eight years of alcohol-free time. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to his emotional rock bottoms, what decided, um, what gave him the inspiration and courage on January 2nd, 2019, when he woke up and told his wife he was done. He said, I surrender. I can't do this anymore. And that was the first deep, honest statement he made to himself in years. I'm excited to hear all about that. But before we get any further, Patrick, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Great. I'm born and uh, live in the Boston area, and you'll hear that in my accent soon enough. I've been a high school teacher. I teach religion and history, and this year is my 25th year teaching high school. I have an amazing wife that I've been married to for some time now, and we have a six-year-old daughter. Wow, there we go. And what do you like to do for fun? Fun, yeah. So I've always really been into the outdoors. I love long-distance hiking. I love car camping, road trips. And recently, I took my six-year-old on our first camping trip to the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and we spent a week on the Saco River, just the two of us. Big time. That's huge. And without alcohol, I imagine you were present and there for every moment, right? Paul, that's the exact word I was going to say. I was 100% present with you know, the, the love, my joy, my six-year-old daughter, and every moment being with her from the river to the thunderstorms, it was us. And, and that was life, real life. So growing up, I would go camping with my family, my teens, early high school, and it was all about just that, getting connected with nature outdoors and camping. And then for about 15 years, it was just getting shit-faced. And it was such a pleasure, uh, so refreshing to get back to what camping is. Um, going out there and, and really recharging in nature and being in, I just love that stuff. So I can keep going with that. But Patrick, give listeners some background with your drinking. When did you start? How much did you drink? When did you realize that it was perhaps a problem? And at that moment, um, what rules did you put into place to attempt to moderate? Uh, did you have a rock bottom moment? Take some time, get us up to speed and, and try to give us ages so we can chronologically stick with you here. I'm excited to hear it, Patrick. Excellent. So, as I said, I grew up in Boston, Irish Catholic family, and when high school uh, was coming to an end, I needed to decide what I was going to do next. And so I signed up for a Catholic seminary in Boston, and uh, I went off to seminary at 18, and we had these things called spiritual directors. And during this time, alcoholism was just really starting to be talked about in the Catholic Church uh, for the priesthood. Um, it was it was always there, but people were starting to to deal with it, and uh, clinics were being set up for priests to to go to 
And they wanted to kind of screen for that when we went in. And so I was kind of screened uh, through it. And through that interview, I actually accepted I was an alcoholic at, at, at 18 years old when I entered the seminary. And what, not, did, what did that look like? You said your spiritual director believed you could be an alcoholic and you agreed. Ooh. What were the what was the criteria there? Yeah, the criteria really was this this mental obsession that I constantly had. Now, in high school, uh, I had that, you know, the gang of friends who, who drank and we drank on the weekends and we had house parties. But for me, it was like that house party ended, but I still wanted more after. And at one point, I actually, well, he knows now, but I stole my brother, my older brother's information. And I went to the Massachusetts you know, drivers, um, uh, the registry of motor vehicles. And I got a fake ID when I was 16 years old. Okay. So I was actually yeah. going to the liquor store at 16 and, um, and buying beer with, you know, on my own, by myself, going to a park <laughs> and drinking by myself. Um, yes. Yeah, spiritual director might've been onto something there. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you know, um, so I always thought of it and I always wanted it, but there was no big like jackpot. I went, you know, there was just, it was just always on my mind. Real quick, what do you mean by jackpot? Does this mean like, uh, yeah. yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in high school, it wasn't like, you know, I didn't total a car or, you know, get in trouble with the police or end up in a hospital or something. I mean, I drank and I got sick and I did all those kinds of things. But in my gang of friends, I was like, yeah, that's what we did. But in my back of my head, it was like, but the next day I wanted to go out by myself and get more. Yeah, and, right. they, and they were done. So that was this obsession that we talked about. And so I accepted it at 18. So I just said, I'm not going to drink. You know, I'm going to focus on my studies. And, and that's what I did. I did actually go to AA meetings at 18. They had like young, young people's meetings that I, I used to go to uh, out in Brighton at uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital. I actually became a sponsor at like 20 years old. Wow, you're doing it. Yeah. So I thought like, this is great. I did stayed in school for a long time. I got too many degrees, uh, a couple of masters and a doctorate. And um I don't know, life was really good. <laughs> and then I decided to leave the ministry and uh, pursue high school teaching. And, and that's where lots of things changed in my life. And that connection to seminary and the connection to that kind of that path I was on, I found myself in, and this is not going to be a shocker, but a real just lonely, depressed, disconnected spot. Everything I knew kind of changed. So I said, you know, Sam Adams was making this great new beer at the time, and uh, I'm going to have one. So I did. And uh, I started drinking, um, you know, right around 28, 29 years old or so. Okay. Um, and it was it was just beer, you know, and I liked it. And it wasn't, uh, sometimes you hear the stories of like, it's off to the races. And the next thing I knew, I woke up in Ireland. And it wasn't like that for me. Gotcha. It was, it was a progression, a real progression. And in the next couple of years, the, the beer became scotch. The next couple of years in my, you know, 32, 33, the scotch uh, became vodka. And then I entered this pattern. In the forward of your book, Trisha Lewis talks about this cycle. And my cycle was this. I, would, I was a teacher, and I never, ever drank while teaching. Never have. There was one rule I didn't break. I think I broke all the other ones, but I didn't break that one. <laughs> we got to have that one line in the sand that we don't that cross just to justify it. it. Yeah. It was I would get home around 3 o'clock, 3.30. I'd pour myself a vodka. That vodka would turn into a water glass full of ice and vodka. I'd lay on the couch, not really eat much, and I kind of drank until I fell asleep, mostly on the couch, and my wife let me sleep on the couch. I'd wake up at 3.13 almost every day, 3.13 a.m., soaking, T-shirt next to my bed because I knew I'd need it. I'm next to the couch. I knew I'd need it, changed my T-shirt, and kind of just hung out there until it was time to get up, really hung over, make my way to school, kind of get sick teach my classes, and then right around 3 o'clock or so again in the afternoon, there was almost this euphoria that came over of my next drink is only about a half hour away. Yeah, like the dopamine is already being released knowing what's going to happen next. And so in your email, and this is, this is a big reason why I got you on here right now because I wanted you to share this with listeners. You said, for many years my life was get home from work, pour vodka over ice, pour more until I fell asleep, wake up hungover at about 3.30 a.m., and then go to work, be sick until about 9 a.m.-ish, get through the day, pour vodka over ice, rinse and repeat. Wow. And what happened next? I was able to do that seven or eight years or so, and it literally was that. And that was it until my wife and I, um, about seven years ago, so you know, 44 years or so old, we decided we we're going to have a child. <laughs> and um, 
that I, I mean, honestly, I never thought I was going to have a child. I was kind of convinced I was just going to be this kind of drinker, this kind of worker, and I'm just going to go through life. And I kind of accepted it at that point. Like this was my patent. This was my destiny. And there was like a way I connected with ghosts doing that. Like my, my, my relatives that had severe drinking problems, my the dead relatives that had severe drinking problems. I felt as though I was in this line of like, almost like this gifted Irish, you know, tragedy <laughs> that just relived itself every day. And I, in a weird way, I connected to it in the most lonely of ways, but I felt like this is my destiny. But we decided to have a kid and that went really smoothly. And my wife announced, you know, we're going to have a kid. And of course they made the deals. That's it. No more. I'm done. I'm going to, uh, you know, get this and I'm going to have like one beer a day and that's it. I'm going to be the best father in North America. And how do those deals work out? No, it got worse, Paul, like real worse. Oh, okay. My wife, you know, didn't drink for the the nine months. Um, Mm -hmm. She's a very light drinker, a glass of wine, maybe once or twice a week. Never had more than two glasses of wine in her life, in a day. And I started really hitting the vodka uh, early. Um, I started hitting the vodka, you know, in the afternoon. I started hitting the vodka at night, not at work, but anytime I had a day off, it was, I kept it in my car in the Poland spring bottles. I kept it in my basement in the Raptors. I kept it in a golf bag, and I don't really golf. Uh, I had a, uh, a workbench down my basement, and I broke things just to go down there to fix them so I could drink. Wow, that right there is one of the best. You might be an alcoholic gift lines I've ever heard. <laughs> it's true, and uh, it was coming close to my child's birth, and I packed my overnight bag full of nips. I wrapped them in socks. Because I don't think I could stay at the hospital without a constant supply. Patrick, I think this is the third or fourth time I've heard a father doing just that, packing a bag for the hospital and, and, and bringing a supply in there. So, number one, you're not alone. I know. And it's, it, you know, it, this is the truth. And this is where I'm at with the honesty is uh, her water broke in the hospital. She was on some kind of, you know, a, a drug to help her with the pain. And I was shooting nips in the corner when she couldn't couldn't see me. And Patrick, and I, let, me, let me ask this, ask this question. It sounds like that leg you were standing on is that line in the sand that you never drank at work. Never. Through all this, you know, the nine months of pregnancy, did you know, I mean, is there like writing on the wall? Are you actively trying to stop or is this something that's like completely in the background that like, eh, maybe I'll deal with this one day in the future? I didn't think I could stop. I think I could only try to regulate better. Oh, okay. So you were still on like, Hey, let's just do a better job of regulation. Patrick, soon as this baby comes, life is going to change. That's going to be the external force pushing me off the tipping point. Yep. Okay. I got you. Maybe have a beer or two here and there, but you know, that's it. Sure. But the idea of nada has not quite arrived yet. No. Real quick. Why do you think the idea of, of, of quitting hadn't been there yet because you didn't want to, or it was like almost too extreme of a task? It was too extreme. I just could no longer, after this long period of time of drinking, pretty much 20 years now of, of, of drinking and with the progression to getting real bad, I just couldn't imagine life without it. And also the physical addiction at that time, it was just, it, it was it was all encompassing. It was gripping. I was in its grip of, of, I couldn't go 24 hours physically without drinking. Were there people in your life that said, Patrick, you need to cut it back? Yeah, yeah. Um, pretty much... Pretty much everybody. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, my wife always talked about cutting back, not about stopping, but about cutting back. Um, my dad gave me a few honest talks about like, Patrick, you smell like vodka and it's 9 a.m. Like, get your life together. You know, you're a smart guy. You went to college. You're a teacher. Like, just cut it back. Everyone was about cutting it back and regulating. No one was about quitting. Uh, my family's um, um, culture, uh, is a drinking culture. You know, we drink when you're baptized, we drink when we bury you. And that's the kind of culture I grew up. My wife's culture was an absolute teetotaler Pentecostal family that alcohol was evil. She never saw alcohol really before me. And she just thought, wow, these Irish people really drink. She's not Irish. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the, the comments from family members were never to be like, Hey Patrick, we need to ditch the booze. It was always, let's cut it back. And it always comes from a good spot in the heart, but like, hey, you're a smart guy, right? Like, like yeah. this is some sort of intelligence thing. And bless their hearts, normal drinkers, they don't fully understand it. So, so then you go that your son is born, and then what yeah, happens? My daughter, yeah. oh, your, your daughter, you said? Yes, it's my daughter. Okay, sorry about that. So your daughter is born, and then my what happens? Born, and um, she gets home. And this, this is where I just, 
I just couldn't handle life. It, you know, change was hard. Uh, change leaving the seminary life was hard. And now the second biggest change in my life, the birth of my daughter. So she gets home. I'm 45. My wife's doing amazing things. We stayed in the hospital a lot, lot like nine days. Um, she had some complications. She's totally fine now. And I was home for I was going to be home for work, maybe a month or so on leave. And all I did was was guzzle vodka um, 24-7. And that lasted about two weeks. And I was contemplating suicide at that time. Wow. And did the, did the body start to show some symptoms of like, Patrick, we're about to shut down here? Yeah, it was no sleep for probably two weeks. And when I say no sleep, like people are like, that's impossible. It's really not. Maybe a half hour. <laughs> maybe a half hour. No. With, yeah. yeah, with poison ethanol, it is possible yeah. to not sleep for two weeks. It was pure rocket fuel. Whoa. Two straight weeks, morning, noon, a handle maybe a day. For yeah, two weeks. when I was drinking, well, I don't know, man, I don't know if I hit, yeah, when I was drinking close to the, the, that amount, I couldn't eat either. What was the diet intake like? Um, no diet. Uh, I tried to force maybe a power bar down once a day, but I couldn't even get that down. Whoa, that was, yeah, that's painful. Living right, right off the vodka, crying all night, banging, hitting the wall, punching holes in the wall, like just losing it. And obviously, um, like that was it, right? My wife's like, you got to go to the hospital. Um, they took me to the hospital. This is my, my baby's only two weeks old. Now it's November. It's December, say, 20th or so. And how old are you uh, at this moment? I'm, for, I'm 40, 45 years old. Okay, 45. Yeah, yeah. and um, I get to the hospital. They do the blood test. It's like uh, 0.3 something or another. And this is after like a long drive to the hospital. Yeah, good work. They, uh, yeah, <laughs> they check me in for nine days. It's a kind of a detox psych ward. Fill me full of uh, Ativan. I was like a walking zombie for nine days. Go to outpatient. And all I wanted to do was to convince everybody I got this. <laughs> sure you did. Yeah. And my plan was I'm going to drink again, but I'm going to show everybody I can moderate. Even after that. I mean, I spent Christmas, my baby's first Christmas, watching Home Alone on a VCR in a hospital outside of Boston. Yeah. Yikes. And I wanted to make a plan how I can drink again. Come up with a plan. AA. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to join AA. So I did. I became a secretary of a group within six months. I got the keys to the church. I did all the re-laminating of all the literature and made signs. And like I was the hero of AA. But I didn't tell them I was doing nips before I would go to meetings. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell anybody. And I'm maybe two nips, three nips a day. Because with nips, I figured if I bought the bottle, you know, it's gone. But with the nips, I try to control it. I mix them with coffee and I try to hide my breath. And I did that for about six months. The first six months, uh, I think I, I was sober. The second six months, um, I was nipping. And as my first year came to get my chip, I shot two nips, went to the AA meeting, got a cake, got a card, hosted the, chaired the meeting, and went and shot a third nip after with the brand new heavy one-year chip in my pocket. Whoa, two questions. For the six months where you're doing a couple nips a day, did you say to yourself, hey, Patrick, you're a genius. This plan seems to be working. And the second question is, when you got your one-year chip after taking a couple nips, was part of you like, uh, I don't know if this is legit? So I had this wonderful way of dealing with, which I think is the most brilliant saying in, in AA, and I'm serious, is the one day at a time. I just kept resetting every day. Like, oh, it's one day at a time. So if I have nips today, tomorrow, it's one day. And so I had this like math thing, like maybe it's not 365, but it's like three, you know, 25 because I drank on these days. So I had this weird math thing in my head of it's one day at a time. So eventually it will be a year because I might take a day off here or there. It was just this complicated way of going to AA, letting people know I got this, having a few nips or around five, six o'clock at night before a meeting, coming home, having a second one bed. And that was my new cycle. Let me comment on that real quick, Patrick. The I, I've had similar plans, uh, or you know, elaborate plans of how I'm gonna, when I'm gonna drink, what time I'm gonna drink, how I'm gonna. I've like downloaded BAC blood alcohol calculator apps mm -hmm. and sat at an old Chicago with three apps open at one time, um, following the most liberal, most convenient app for myself. 
and it's just exhausting. And studies show that small decisions take up the same same amount of brain wattage as big decisions. But that right there just sounds exhausting. I mean, it's like pretty. I mean, it's it's, it's a plan, right? But yeah. there's so much brain wattage that we take up in our brain just figuring out how we're going to pull this off. Oh yeah, I did all the research too. Like you, many people on your podcast. You know, I did moderate moderation and what does it really mean and AA is only this successful I mean I just did every possible search I could do to justify these three or four nips a day go to AA it doesn't get worse um, and now and that then I kind of committed this is going to be you know how I do it I got that one year chip and then uh, I I worked on convincing my wife that I uh, I now could drink in safety a few months after that year. Like I made it a year, I, I showed everyone I could do this. And so I said that I'll have one beer, no more than two, and I'll just have them in front of you um, at dinner time. Hmm. She was definitely not happy, but you know, she's a brilliant woman and she basically said, I can't control you, you know? You make your own choices. Um, and she never tried to control me. Uh, she loves me and I love her, but she knew I had to, you know, suffer my own pains and liberate myself. And now I started drinking again. And so in the second brilliant plan, this is after a year, so I'm 46 now, one beer, two beer, and I hid beers everywhere. I'm a hider, Paul. Hide and seek, uh, hide and sneak. I had them everywhere. <laughs> and I bought beer, I bought the highest alcohol content beer, the IPAs with the, you know, the sevens and the eights, uh, because I'm only having one or two. So I'd nurse those in front of my wife, but you know, either down the cellar, I would just be pounding other ones I got cans so I could smash them and make easy throw away because throwing away is always a hard. Getting rid of bottles and cans is very difficult. And that progressed for another four years up until basically the 8th, um, excuse me, um, January 2nd. Right before then, my wife went to Ohio where she grew up with my daughter. And this was Christmas break. I'm on break from school. She went to see her side of the family during uh, right after Christmas uh, for a few days. And I stayed home. I bought... <sighs> a lot of scotch, one pizza, and for three days I had a bender on my couch. I literally didn't leave the house. There was a TV on and I drank scotch for three days straight and I had one pizza for those three days. She gets home, I go to bed, I woke up and it, was, it wasn't this uh, St. Paul moment of I got hit by lightning and you know now I you know blind for three days and now I can you know see the light. I had I decided when I went to bed that night that I was done. But for the first time, I said, I'm going to stop lying to myself because I lied to everybody else. And that doneness was me being brutally honest. And I woke up and I said to her that I was done. And I'm going to go to AA like tonight uh, just to tell people that I'm done. And for the first time in, in a good 20 years, it was 100% honest because I said it to myself and I was doing this now for myself. Patrick, what do you think the difference was? Because you've, you've probably made that promise to yourself several times, like, I'm done, I'm done. But it sounds like you knew in that moment that the promise was going to stick. What was different this time that you felt? Uh, the difference is I reached, with those three days, uh, kind of a, a turning point where this could be the rest of my life. I could sit on a couch, I drink a lot of a scotch or vodka, carry this on for a period of time. My wife would probably leave me, you know, I'd really probably mess up my kids, you know, six, seven year old, like getting parents, getting divorced and that kind of stuff. That didn't stop me per se, but I just didn't want to live that life anymore. And for me, I always knew who I am and who I was, but I clouded it. And I wanted to reawaken or, or liberate myself from what I always have been. And when I said I was done, it was literally the cloud, right? It's the it's that mask or that veil or that cloud just started lifting. It didn't get all bright and sunshine and like I ran around and hugged daisies. But just that first moment of the clouds feeling to lift away. And that honesty in allowing those clouds to start lifting um, is, really, is really what did it. And it was going to be about now, like today, just today. So I love in your email you sent me, you said, I have given up the fight and That's found it. a deep and accepting peace in this moment. Now, Patrick, I remember when I called my mom, dad, and brother and left them several voicemails that I I was done. I was I had I'd given up. I'm going to rehab. I'm going to treatment. Mm -hmm. And the next day when they called me back, 
I was like, something feels different, guys. Uh, I think I can postpone the treatment for a day or two. I didn't know this at the time. Looking back, it was clear what happened. I had actually got the memo from the conscious to the unconscious moment. The intention had clearly been set um, that I was done fighting. Like I was just done fighting. This is where it gets confusing is you actually yeah. have to give up, right? And in your email, you mentioned the word surrender. Now, this is a word that can uh, make many people just shut the big book. Be like, all right, yeah. I'm done. But we can simplify yeah. this concept and say, on that morning of 1-2-2019, two, two you surrendered to the next stage of your life, the next chapter in Patrick Foley's life, where you were going as an individual with all the signs internally and externally were telling you to go. You just surrendered. That's it. It's really, it really doesn't make any more complicated than that. You knew their life that a life without alcohol was shortly on the horizon. That shortly happened to be now. How'd you do it? What happened then? Yes. Yeah, and I was thinking as you were saying that, and because for me, it was every time before, it was for a lifetime, right? It was for a future. It was a for forever. But the surrendering was literally now in this moment, in this battle, in this spot, I'm walking away from the fight. Like, I quit. Like, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm leaving, right? I'm off the wheel. The wheel can spin for itself, right? And I'm done. So, I, you know, I, uh, at that point, I did start picking up some literature, too. Um, you, you just said this pretty well in... Um, in Annie Grace's book, uh, she says, um, when you make the conscious decision to quit or cut back on alcohol, your unconscious desire remains unchanged. You have unknowingly created cognitive uh, dissonance. Yeah, that's it, right? And I, I wasn't in that spot anymore. It was, I'm absolutely surrendering to this and letting it all go. And I'm going to live right now here in this full moment. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. And I, I think if... Uh, I read this really cool book. It's called Alcohol is Shit. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the secret sauce, Paul, is your chapter six. Um, oh, the thinking trap. That's it, man. I mean. Dude, I, thank you, I, man. I appreciate I, it. Yeah, I think 11 is like the second dopest chapter. But uh, six for me is where it's at, right? It's the thinking traps, right? And um, if I had a surrender, uh, if I had to like really summarize that chapter it was uh you can't think yourself to sobriety you have to unthink it yeah and it's so confusing right it's we we think we need to pile all this stuff on our plate but it's about unthinking it's about letting things go and putting your body in a situation where the mind can kind of take a break and and that's when you're going to get the mind that the subconscious the conscious mind, the thinking brain, the feeling brain, the heart and soul, once all that stuff gets on the collaborative effort plan, then mm. it's game over. There can still be some some rough patches in the road, but like sure. like Annie Grace said, the cognitive dissonance, it's painful, but it has to happen because there's, there's, there's going to be this time frame when you wake up and you're like, I'm never drinking again, but the unconscious, yeah. it takes a lot of those for it fully to get on the same page. So if you're experiencing cognitive dissonance, listeners, don't get down on yourself. It's all part of the process. But once the scales will tip, I did an episode called The Tipping Point probably 20, 30 ep episodes ago talking about this. As soon as the energy to quit becomes more powerful, the energy to consume the poison alcohol, then watch out. It's on. Yeah, the problem really is thinking, right? And uh, and for most, quote, this is the core of addiction. And that is uh, Paul uh, Churchill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not used to this. This is too I funny. I know, I know. But man, your book's just out. And so... Um, oh, man. People are quoting really, my own book. I'm like, oh, what is know? going on here? But I really want to say, you know, I'm very proud uh, of you for writing this book. And um, you really gathered a lot of people great masters, you know, like, uh, Tolly and, um, God, man, just you and reading him and then reading this and putting it together. I think this book's really going to help a lot of people for, you know, the 21st century for the 2020 time period. It's just a great collection. And what's amazing about reading the book is all I hear in my mind is your voice. Like, it, it, it's like an audio book when I read it, especially when you're like, wow, man, yeah, be cool, be calm. It's great. And like, whenever you say that, cause like, it reads like your podcast, and I just I hear your voice. It's, it's been pretty cool the last weekend. I picked it up and didn't put it down in two days. Man, this is new new territory for me. I'm filled with these emotions right now, Patrick. I don't I don't even see it, but I'm kind of starting to tear up right now. I, yeah, I gosh, it's good, it's good, and I'm telling you, it 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 helped me a lot. Um, I just got it, uh, like I said uh, last week, and read it last weekend. But it really pulled together a bunch of a bunch of great work, and and 
kudos for you, man. Well, if I wrote the book eight months later, you'd, you'd be in the book, man. You've already dropped several <laughs> value bombs. And, um, so, so how, how did you do it, man? You, 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 you detached from some serious habits and addiction. How yeah. did you do it? I'm so curious to see this. I do practice Christianity. My family practices Christianity. And I think in its simplest form, I think when Tolley talks about like at, at its essence, the spiritual, you know, teachings are all the same. We just have like different teaching paths, different, you know, ways of doing it. I really believe at the core, it is the same. And I've actually been a religion teacher for 25 years uh, through this wrestle, through this wow. struggle. Yeah. And, you know, in day to day, I'm saying one thing to my students and that night I'm going home and, and just drinking vodka to like that cycle of like, I know this stuff, but I'm not living it. I'm not owning it. And for me, you know, uh, there's this great chapter, another chapter six, but this is uh, Matthew. <laughs> when he talks about like the birds don't worry about tomorrow, you know, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Um, and for me, that's it. Like tomorrow can worry about tomorrow, man. I'm going to be like a bird today and just gather what I need today, you know. And really, really fully be present in every moment. And the only way I can be fully present in every moment is to be brutally honest with myself. And once I connect those, I feel liberated. Listeners, there's there's no shortage of concepts to build the foundation to move forward in life without alcohol. But I'm not kidding you. I think the power of now and Eckhart Tolle, many mm -hmm. have said this. Many have said this. You just quoted Matthew. Some guy named Jesus said this in, in, in many different ways to phrase this way. The Buddha saying the same thing also. But the power of now, this concept, if we can conceptualize it and live it, but the, this is where it gets confusing too. You can't think yourself into the now. That is, again, the ultimate mind F. Um, mm -hmm. You can't think yourself into it. But it sounds like, sounds like Patrick, you have fully gone to embrace the holy grail of all concepts, which is now. That's it. It is now, right? Uh, and for me, and this is not preaching at all, I'm kind of connected for Christians. When, in, in Luke, when he talks about, like, everyone's looking for the kingdom of God, right? Is it tomorrow? Am I going to get a new job? And, like, then I'm going to be happy. And, like, there's a kingdom over there. And he just goes, you fools, the kingdom is within you. And then once you truly say that, and the Buddha says the same exact thing, right? Like, it's here. It's now, right? It's the possible that you'll never be fully alive if you keep looking somewhere else until you look within. Patrick, are you able to look at alcohol and revere alcohol as one of the greatest teachers of all time to show you this lesson? Talking to you right now, I'm going to say yes. I would never have learned this lesson had it not have been for alcohol. Yeah. I, I, I think it helped me fully realize the lesson. Intellectually, I could, you know, uh, physically I could, but when my spirit fully embraced it or the mind, if you will, you know, I'm not my thoughts. But once I fully accepted this, this in my life, it was the most liberating time in my 51 years. Wow. That's deep, Patrick. That's I'm, I'm loving this interview right now. This is good, good stuff. I know listeners if at first you, you've heard like the one day at a time thing, of course, right? But the, the, the infinite power of just this moment, because it's the only moment we've ever had. In fact, Einstein, one of his most famous crowning achievements, milestones, is that time does not exist. Like, we're not going to quite go there right now. It's a, it's a total mindfuck. Um, sorry for the F-bomb. But uh, oh, no, no. crazy yeah. stuff to explore, which is 100% applicable to sobriety. In fact, one of the most powerful, like, ninja sword through a watermelon type yeah. stuff power. Yeah, one of my actually favorite all-time authors is uh, authors is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and he writes this amazing book. Uh, it's Living Buddha, Living Christ, where he combines Christian and Buddhist teaching, which really is my practice. And he, and he says this technique, if we must speak of a technique, is to be in the present moment, to be aware that we are here and now, that the only moment to be alive is in this present moment. And that's it. Me and you are alive right here in this moment, and, and, and we're living life. I love it, Patrick. And what are some of the lessons you've learned about yourself along the way? Wow. I think that I've always been here, right? I've always been this. I've always, I'm not discovering a new self. Like I'm just lifting the cloud of someone who I always have been. And that's a very peaceful feeling. Um, just it, it, And the cloud is the best way I, 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 I try to describe it. It's like I, I've been clinically depressed, and I think a lot of us have. And when that depression leads, it's not like one morning you wake up and like, whoa, geez, there I go. <laughs> you know? But it's a, it's a long process for some people, sometimes shorter. But it's like this lifting 
eerie feeling, then the smell of the forest is clearer. The you know the the vision, the, the way you see people, the way a door opens at CVS, like everything becomes clearer when this cloud lifts. When you're in it, man, it's tough. It is tough. I mean, I was in it. I wanted to not die, but I didn't know how to live anymore. When you allow to unthink this and that cloud to lift, there's a liberation that it's not even like exciting. It's just like it's just like being at peace. It's like a baby penguin sleeping on your heart. Oh, God. I I know what you did there. I know what you did there. Um, Another level 10 concept that Patrick just dropped, huge value bomb there, is this journey is not about compiling or accumulating anything. It's about revealing what's always been there all along. I love how you said that. I'm quoting you. Next (laughs) book I write, Patrick. And I know with with the quantity that you were drinking, um, were there there cravings? um, And how did you get past them? And do you still experience cravings? Yeah, you know, I, I want to say I do because it would be like normal and <laughs> most common. I think I I haven't I have in the past a lot. These last eight nine months or so, I, you know, no, no. I look at it, but my wife has a bottle of wine in the house for you know a time that she wants to. I actually don't have cravings right now, and I'm not in some like you know better than thou or any of that. I I just let that go. And I'm not saying, you know, once in a while I'll drive by a liquor store and look at it and go, hmm. But that's it. It's fleeting. And if I do have a craving like that, I accept it. I own it. I don't fight it. And it it goes so much quicker when I accept it. And walk us through a typical day in your life without alcohol, Patrick. Yeah, well, let's see. We'll start in the morning. Wake up with my uh, family and um, we have a little time in the morning and then we get ready for school. My wife is an, uh, an amazing educator with Boston Public School Kids and um, a learning lab in science. And my daughter's just started kindergarten at the local public school. I get her off to the bus. I teach some really amazing classes with the best students in North America. And I pick my kid up after school. Uh, I cook dinner. My wife gets home later. And we hang out as a family at dinner table and have great conversations, do, you know, after dinner things. And um, the three of us pray every night as a family and we go off to bed. That's a really typical day. And that's a kick-ass, happy day. That is a kick-ass day. And how has your life changed without alcohol in it? The number one change really is I'm fully present with my wife. I'm fully present with my daughter. I'm fully present with myself. Like, Alcohol separated me, right? The addiction, what do you say, Paul? The opposite addiction is uh, connection. Like not connection. Yeah, I was going to say not connected, but it's connection, right? There we go. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Um, and as much as I wanted to feel connected, the alcohol didn't allow me to connect. And without that alcohol, it's just me. Like that's the me that's always been there, but it was it was hidden. Wow. And Patrick, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you answer these questions within 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? That might be redundant. I'll do my best. All right. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? Honestly, I I lied mostly to myself. And then when I stopped, it got better. What is a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you? Camping on the Saco River with my six-year-old daughter. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? You're going to like this one. This is mine. Bipolar Mango Cherry Blast. Did you say cherry Mango Bi- Cherry Bliss? What did you say? Bipolar Mango Blast? <laughs> oh, my God. It's a Boston accent. I'm going to say not bipolar. <laughs> the company Polar. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I mean, I'll try it. I love mango. <laughs> no, but Mango Cherry Blast. A bliss. Oh, Jesus, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of your favorite resources? I, I, I do like a bunch of podcasts. You know, the Naked Mind is great. Yours is great. The Recovery Revolution. I, I, uh, I do go to a couple of AA meetings a week. And my favorite thing to do is to uh, volunteer at a, a detox on Monday nights I try to get to and talk to people that are in one or two days of uh, sobriety. That is so cool. And what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? Cross-country trip with my six-year-old, maybe two months in the Subaru and hitting all the national parks. Hey, we got a couple Yellowstone Glacier. Come say what's up. Her first time in Yellowstone is going to be magic. There we go. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Brutal honesty with self. Brutal, brutal honesty with self. And before we depart, Patrick, you know what I'm going to ask. Give us your own customized, you might have a drinking problem if line. 
Yeah, uh, I guess I'll repeat that. You might be an alcoholic if you shoot vodka nips on your way to your one-year anniversary of sobriety at an AA meeting. Yeah, and if you purposely break shit in your house, you can go <laughs> go downstairs to the basement to fix it and drink. <laughs> yeah, number two, that's right. Oh, I love it. Oh, Patrick, that was incredible. Oh, thank you so much for reading the book, listening to the podcast. Cool stuff is happening, and it can happen to anybody who ditches the booze. This is just the magic of what's possible. Yeah, um, I'm really proud of you and the work you do, and um, I hope you know sharing this story you know, helps somebody else. I know it will. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Paul. This past August, at the Recovery Elevator Retreat that took place in Bozeman, Montana, I put on a workshop called Your Story. I got the idea for this workshop because I personally went through it at a Dr. Sue Mortar retreat that I attended. I think this one was in April. Okay, so I had people get in a circle, and everybody was facing somebody on the inside of the circle. And for three minutes, I let everybody tell their story to that person. After that first three minutes was up, I had everybody rotate. The next time they told their story, wait for it, here's the twist, they had to sing that story in opera. And in the background, I had an opera song playing. For three minutes, they had to do this. Was it comfortable? Hell no. Almost everybody did it. But there were a couple that were like, no way, too far outside of my comfort zone, which is okay as well. So the next three minutes had them rotate. I said, okay, here we go. Let's tell your story again, but we're going to bark it. Bark it like a dog. And guess what I played? Who let the dogs out by the Baja men? The fourth time we told our story, we did it in alien sounds, and I played the Star Wars theme. So what was the point of this workshop? The point was to raise the vibrational frequency around your story, that when we recall it, then perhaps a smile will come to the face. It doesn't quite have the energetic charge that it used to. Now, like I said, I went through this workshop, and every time I look back at my story since that workshop, it's been lighter. It's been softer. It didn't quite have the intensity that it did before. So do you need to be at a retreat to do this, to face somebody? Maybe. Or you could look in the mirror and do that whole workshop just yourself, one-on-one. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. 